I'm Mary Lyons, the Wealth Woman. And I'm Eric Alexander with Acorn Grove. Welcome to the Big Wealth Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about everyone's favorite topic, taxes. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, if you are following the news lately, you may have seen the article in the Wall Street Journal talking about changes to um, contributions to 401ks specific to the catch-up provision, which is something that anybody over the age of 50 can take advantage of right now. So Eric, do you want to talk a little bit about the catch-up provision and what it is to kick us off? And then we'll jump into the changes coming in 2024. Yeah. So the catch-up provision is this kind of cool little feature that you get when you get older, right? You get a lot of bad things when you get older, but one of the cool (laughs) things you get when you get older is you get sort of more room to put contributions into, you know, 401ks, IRAs, and those kind of things. So in a 401k, kind of the slated contribution limit for 2024 is about $23,000, and they kind of index that up every year. But for the catch-up, if you're over 50, you can put another $7,7500 into the 401k as a way to sort of incentivize you to get caught up, incentivize you to to do more savings now that you're you're getting closer to retirement. Right. So um, that's something that a lot of people like to take advantage of simply because they can pay less in taxes today right. and they can opt to pay the taxes in the future. So we, we've we done a couple of podcasts, I think, where we talk about taxes or 401ks and that sort of thing. And so I think it's important just to start off by saying we are um, tool agnostic or product agnostic, right, uh, meaning that we don't generally feel strongly that something is really good or something is really bad unless we've actually done the analysis. And when it comes to 401ks, I think that this is a tool that is in some ways misunderstood because a lot of times people will come in and tell us, well, I'm maxing out my 401k because I want to save money in taxes. Right. I think we have to start by saying you're not actually saving anything uh, necessarily. You you could be in the long run, but what you're really doing is just deferring when you're going to pay the taxes. So you're when you put money into a traditional 401k, you're choosing not to pay the taxes on those dollars that you earn today, and you're opting to pay them later when you actually take the money out of an account so that you have income. So one of the reasons that you might do that would be that you believe you will be in a lower tax bracket during retirement. And if you currently believe that to be the case, I'm just going to throw this out there. We need to have a conversation because you should not be planning to have less money in the future. It may happen, but you should be shooting to at least replace your full income. But the other reason that you might choose to do that would be if we were in a particularly high tax rate environment today, and you believe that the tax brackets themselves were going to be at lower rates whenever you are retiring in the future, regardless of your income level. Right. Sense, Eric, you might want to repeat that in a slightly different way because I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure I said that in a way that everybody's going to follow. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think the tax piece of it is always sort of a gamble. If I'm making X dollars today and I think I'm going to make less than that later on then it makes all the sense in the world to delay when I'm paying taxes on that because in assuming that ta- the tax rates all remain equal, that at 65 or 70 or whenever I retire or 60, then I'm going to be paying less money in taxes because I have less money coming in, in the door. Right. So that's right. one reason why 401ks are, are brilliant. That, that's a great way to go do that. And again, I'm just, I'm just uh, what is it, bookending what you're saying. So I'm just saying in yeah. a different way. But 
The But the other opportunity, the other sort of gamble is, hey, tax rates are really, really high right now. There's no way they're going to remain that high. I'm going to pause and let you sort of have a joke in your head there. As, yeah, as that's the, not the case right now. That, so that's not the gonna... case right now. I'll insert the laugh track here in a second. But the if you think that the tax rates are going to be lower in the future, then it makes sense to delay when you pay that tax because you're you're paying at a lower rate. The problem with all of that is you don't get a vote. So if it turns out that it's lower, good for you. If it turns out it's higher, well, that's bad for you. But in, in either case, you're not pulling that lever. Somebody else is. So I'll give sort of a radical example of this for a minute. Um, I think it was maybe the year before World War II started. Yep. Yep. I've got uh, the tax rate was what, about 80% or something? If you earned above 5 million, that's the highest tax bracket. So what that means is once you hit that 5 million of income bracket, Everything right. you make above that five million, the IRS gets to take 80 cents for every dollar that you're earning above five million. Right. Now, especially if you factor in inflation, that's a very, very small group back in pre-World War II yeah. times. But the reason that I'm using this example is because once we entered into World War II, the tax brackets themselves changed. And right. what happened, Eric? It, it, yeah. The highest bracket didn't start at 5 million. Now it started 200. at 200,000. Right. So there's a whole swath of people that were like, I don't need to worry about that. Suddenly it did. And what rate were they taxed at? They were taxed at 88%. So not only did the rate go up, but the volume of people went up. That are paying, right. Yeah. And so all those people that thought, I don't need to worry about that, suddenly almost 90 cents of every dollar that they earned above 200000 was going straight to the IRS and taxes. And wow. I don't know about you, but if I'm losing that much of what I'm earning, I might just place pause on my career for a hot minute, go vacation in Mexico till the end of the year, <laughs> and then start over at the beginning of the next year, right? But I think this is something that a lot of times people don't realize. And if you go look in our podcast history, there is a history of the highest marginal tax brackets podcast where we walk through with visuals. So watch it on YouTube or wherever right. it is that uh, you want to look at the podcast. I think you can do it with visuals on Apple too. But if you go through and look at that, you can get a lot more information on this. So when we talk about uh, tax rate risk, this is what we're talking about. It's not just what is my income going to do and what bracket am I going to find myself in, right. but also where are we? So if you look at the history of the highest marginal brackets as of right now, Eric, what is the average over the course of American history? Yeah, the average is right around 57%, if I'm doing the math right there. So 57%. just almost, almost 60%. Right. And if you think about where we are today, the highest tax bracket is 37%. Right. So that's a huge jump above where we are. And so especially for high earners, it may or may not make sense to be deferring taxes anyways, because right. if you're going to stay in that highest marginal bracket, there is the possibility that the tax rate itself could go up because we are in a below average taxation period in terms of the percentage that the IRS is taking from people that are considered to be high earners. So that context, I think, is really important when you're making these decisions. And a lot of times it gets left completely out of the conversation because when you talk to your CPA, you are measuring the success of your CPA, meaning how well is my CPA doing his or her job? You're measuring it based on how much money you don't pay in taxes this year 
The problem with that is that you could be setting yourself up to pay a lot more in taxes during retirement. And it might make sense when you look at taxes over your lifetime to make very different decisions. And so that context really matters. Uh, And there are very few advisors that are willing to like push against a CPA, because if you look at the research, CPAs are frequently some of the most trusted advisors that a client has. So even when the data might contradict what your CPA is saying, there are very few people that are going to push and show beyond that data so that you have the context of how is this really going to impact me over the course of my lifetime? Real real quick pause there, because you mentioned something that was brilliant because you normally do. The the thing I keep thinking through when I'm when I'm thinking through these tax decisions is if I remove taxes from this equation, would I still make the same choice? Like, yeah. am I making a choice because I'm trying to sort of like game the system and find some way around it? Or strategically, the choice I'm making, and forget Roth and IRA and all the rest of it, but is the choice I'm making a prudent choice helping me grow wealth? Or am I doing something that's kind of stupid strategically? But it only makes sense because I'm trying to do a some sort of tax play. Yeah. And we do see that a lot where people are so focused on minimizing taxes that they actually minimize their wealth building potential at the same time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I'm going to go back to mindset here for a second. So if you've been listening to us for a while, one of the things that Eric introduced into the conversation uh, probably a couple months ago, I'm not sure exactly when you started talking about this, was the idea that mindset trumps strategy and strategy trumps tools. And I think that you have to go into the mindset saying, how do I maximize my income in any given situation? And the tax situation has to be part of that, obviously, right? We can't just pretend it doesn't exist. But if we're looking at max maximizing our income, part of what we have to understand is how much of that income do we actually get to take home. And that shift away from, I'm just looking for a big net worth number into income is really important because when you look at a 401k balance, you're like, oh my gosh, I have a million dollars in my 401k or whatever the number actually is. But what you forget is that's not what you really have in your 401k because the IRS actually owns a percentage of that. And so if you were to cash it out, that number gets dramatically reduced. And so sometimes that focus on net worth can be incredibly misleading Um, instead of focusing on how much lifestyle income is this actually going to create for me. And so that's part of the context that that we want to talk about. So all of this is really about painting a bigger picture for you so that you have some of the right uh, background or or ideas in terms of what questions to go out and ask your your advisor. But I think that this whole conversation started because the catch-up provision on the 401k, which is $7,500 a year right now for someone who is over the age of 50, uh, starting January 1, based on the way the legislation is written right now, uh, can no longer go into the pre-tax bucket of the 401k. Right it will have to go into a Roth component. And this to me is fascinating because historically, historically, the IRS has not wanted high earners to be able to put money into the Roth bucket, right? You phase out, you phase out of being able to contribute to a Roth as your income goes up. So this this is uh, this is like a 
total contradiction to tax legislation up until this point. Yeah, and I'm and I'm having a hard time not donning a giant tinfoil hat as we read through <laughs> this, like in speculating and trying to read into motivations. But yeah, it, some of them I think are somewhat obvious, right? I mean, the the challenge with the Roth historically, the you know the 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 allure of the IRA and the 401k is that I'm deferring the taxes, I'm lowering my taxable bill today and mm-hmm. saving it up for the future, and that's that's compelling. The the allure of the Roth, but also the downside of the Roth is I put all the money in post-tax, which means it's taxed fully as it is right now. But then later on, I don't pay tax on anything. All of the distributions are tax-free. And so they've, you're right, to your point, they've historically not wanted high earners to have Roths because they want that money to grow and, and season and get bigger. And, nice, big, taxable bucket. Right. And it's future revenue, right? They're They're future-proofing their revenue just like you are. So that it's interesting that they're shifting this for high earners over 50 to say, no, 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 no. Come on over to the, the dark side. The water's nice. Like to do the Roth now. And the only thing I can think of is they need money now. Yeah. Immediate revenue now is what I would look at there. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's that that's the only thing that I can see as being a major motivator for why you would do something like this is that the government needs an immediate cash raise. And, and I think this is too. So I'm going to go back to context here for just a second. So we, we uh, I think we talk about this a fair amount, at least I do in my day-to-day conversations, right. is that 401ks were introduced into the tax code in 1978. Right. Can you talk for just a second, Eric? I know you have it up kind of on your screen uh, and are looking at it as we have this conversation. What was the tax rate for the highest marginal bracket in 1978? Because Excellent. because this speaks to tax strategy that has been pushed for quite some time in the U.S. Yeah. So if you think about that, top marginal tax bracket in 1978 was 70%. Okay. So let's talk about why people say you should max out a 401k. Right. If you're losing 70 cents of every dollar you're earning, at some point, you might be like, heck yeah, I need to max out my 401k so I don't lose that. And if you had made that choice in 1978, instead of paying taxes at 70%, you might be taking money out of your 401k today at 37%. So you would have saved almost half in taxes at that point. And it would have grown to a much larger bucket. And so you're in a situation where that choice made a lot of sense. But if you're at 37 and you're saying, okay, I want to defer this, the only, you know, when you think about catching up, it is the, the people who need to catch up the most are the ones who benefit from not paying the taxes today and paying it later right. because they're already in a situation where they're going to have less money. So taking away that tax benefit for that group allows the IRS to collect the dollars at a higher bracket or a higher amount today. Right. For people who are in their 30s, right, who are saving and they're, you know, going to have full income replacement. None of this conversation is really relevant other than seeing how the the legislation affects and impacts wealth building choices. The context is important here because when you know history, it is easier to make good decisions moving forward. But I think this is, um, I think this is not going to be great for the people who have high incomes that are trying to catch up on their retirement savings because, 
they're the ones that actually need the deferral. But in terms of immediate revenue for the U.S. government, it's great from a legislative perspective for them. Now, the thing that I saw that I think is going to be the biggest problem in all of this is if your plan does not have a Roth option put into place by the end of the year, that catch-up provision could go away. Yeah, and, and then, not that many 401s have a Roth option. That's that's still fairly new. Yeah, so I think one of the articles that I was reading said as many as 30% of uh, plans with the major 401k providers don't have a Roth option at, at all. So the only way for those plans to stay in compliance is to eliminate the catch-up provision until they can add a Roth component. So there's definitely um, a lot of letter writing to... Uh, to your congressman to ask them to amend some of this legislation just to allow the catch-up provision to continue on because certainly the elimination of the catch-up provision was not the intent of the bill. Yeah, and I and I think that's interesting. Some of the one of the articles talked about that that if they if they can't get a two-year delay to go work through the logistics of how to make that actually work, because they got to go figure out, you know, Bob or Susie's making 150 this year. How much were they making last year? How do we calculate that? How do we bring it forward so that we're capturing that correctly? And then what are the logistics to move their contribution from what they're doing right now to go split it out into two different buckets? I mean, that's not a, you know, we're sitting here at halftime in 2023. If those companies that are major companies dealing with hundreds of thousands of employees have got to go do this thing in sub six months. That's a, that's a heavy lift. Well, and the guidance hasn't even come out yet. So if it doesn't come out soon, it's going to be very difficult. And the thing that I find fascinating for all this is just the general lack of consistency. And this is me going on a like complete tangent here that probably has no real relevance, but other than me just needing to grandstand for a minute. Yeah. Uh, the actual highly compensated employee calculation for purposes of plan compliance <laughs> is a different income number than how they're calculating who is considered highly compensated right. for the catch-up provision. Like, right. could we could we just at the very least use the same number for the sake of simplicity? It's like a right. $5,000 difference in income. Right. Well, that's, that's the thing is that it's not radically different it's not like well look only the people making 500k have this problem like there's a clear delineation between those those cohorts of people but one was it 145 on this requirement and 150 become or one yeah something like that i i have to look it up but it's not that different and so it's like oh my gosh and so you know i i think there's an old joke in military circles that the enemy always gets a vote and so i think the other end of this is there's some game gamesmanship i think I could see coming on salaries and other things that come down the pipe. Look, Susie, we're going to lower your income to 143. I know you're used to making 150. We're going to bonus you differently or pay for that. You know, we're going to do all this other stuff to kind of work the system to make it fit. And it goes back to my original point. There's no reason you would have done that before you're twisting yourself in knots to to sort of work around some law or get through some loophole. But right. strategically, uh, that's not what you would have done. I think you're absolutely right. I could see a situation where somebody's income gets bumped down to 144 and now there's a deferred compensation component that doesn't vest until you're at retirement because you're right. not taxed on the deferred compensation until you actually 
have vested in it. And so your whole package might look the same, but in order for you to be able to continue putting that 7,500 in, if that's important to you, that might be part of your salary negotiation now that you never right. would have thought of before. So Eric, I think that's genius that you brought that up because that's amazing counsel um, for people who are making job changes to consider if yeah. they are above the age of 50 when they are doing income negotiations. If you're close to that threshold, you might opt to take a slightly smaller salary to keep those catch-up provisions going into the pre-tax bucket and then add in a deferred compensation with a longer vesting period in order yeah. to end up where you are that that's a you know that as whether you're an employee or an employer you're right those are absolutely things that people are going to have to think about moving forward yeah and you know and the other component of that that i think it makes it really interesting is it allows people to be more creative than maybe they were before of what's really important to me do i really want the extra 5k or 10k or whatever the number is mm -hmm. or would i rather have a car allowance or deferred comp or buy me long-term care and use it as a write-off and like what all the different packages that that people can bring together to build a uh an employee compensation package now are kind of on the table i'm just gonna say i never thought i would hear you say thank you to the irs for driving entrepreneurial creativity but folks <laughs> you heard it here <laughs> it's the silver lining you keep trying to get me to look through <laughs> Ooh, optimism. Here we go. That's I like great. it. <laughs> awesome. oh, oh, that made my morning. Thank you. Well, um, thank you guys for joining us today. If you have questions about your own situation, just remember that we are here to help educate you and education and advice are two totally different things. So you right. want to make sure that you ask the question of someone who has the full context of your situation. Absolutely. That could be us if you want it to be, or it could be whoever you're working with currently. And hopefully we've given you at least some new things to think about and some new questions to ask. But um, if you're looking for Eric, Eric, where can they find you? You can find me at, at Economics with Eric, wherever you social media. And you can find me at The Wealth Woman. You guys have a great day.